thank you for tuning in to episode one of the Martial Art Podcast Show, aka Maps. I'm your host, Bear. And I'm your co-host, Kay. What is this podcast about? Maps is all things martial arts, uh, talked over by two nerds, martial arts and combat sports and fighting culture. So for season one, we have a complete mini-series called Road to Black Belt. Road to Black Belt will also include Road to Championship, as not all combative styles use black belts as grading markers. We also have guests on the show for every episode to represent each style and share their martial arts journey from white belt all the way to black belt. All representing at national level and beyond. And possibly at the end of the show, or end of the season, bringing all the martial artists like a Marvel-less multiverse. Maybe. So, what is this episode about? Are we having um, a more relaxed episode without a guest today? Yep, a history lesson to take it back to the beginning. Where is the beginning? Are we going as far back as the 70s with Bruce Lee? Further back. As far back as when Gracie's developed uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Oh, that's reaching a long time back to 1914, but no, no, way further back. Okay, so back to ancient China, uh, times uh, then, Shaolin. All martial arts in the world came out of Shaolin. Well, we tend to skip a step there. Historically, we can trace the martial art culture from the relationship of India to China. And India has a rich history of martial arts, wrestling being one of the most popular sports of all time. And some would argue one of the oldest sport or physical contests in the world, next to boxing. Yeah, uh, uh, so like my interest went round looking into the the history of Indian martial arts, and uh, I found it's it's very much coming from a philosophical background uh, with martial arts not being called martial arts. Uh, the original name was uh, for a warrior. It's actually just called Kshatriya, with the warriors, and they just had the warrior spirit. And that became into a class, the warrior class, who used to be ruling and then learning martial arts to defend the weak or defend their kingdoms. And it stemmed from there. So it's very much about being a warrior, having the warrior spirit. And it includes uh, Ayurveda, the holistic science of healing, as well as meditation and yogic techniques of breathing and as you mentioned the the wrestling which, which is in the north is called kushti i'm not sure of the name in the south of india what it's called but uh, the wrestling around indian subcontinent was called kushti and there was various forms and um, i'm not sure if, was that the same in china pre predating shaolin so I mean, we can only guess, right? A lot, a lot of the history in terms of because we have to remind ourselves this is ancient history. It's not yeah. so much. Um, we we tend to forget things, uh, or we we tend to have an issue uh, tracing records back, not not even of a very recent time. So going back ancient history, it um, this these are the things of archaeology and and looking at relics and having interpretation. So if we go back to uh, early relations between India and China. Uh, the oldest that 
they estimate to trace back would be like 1 BC, like the first century, uh, which is as old as we, we have on, on our kind of like timeline, like any older than that. We, we're looking at um, beads and trades from India to China. So they do, they do have these, uh, th- these beads and these decorations that they have um, imported from India to China, that they have in China. So you have these in the, in the um, what they call etched carnelian beads, uh, these Indian beads that have um, excavated from archaeological sites in China, from Western Jail and uh, in the spring and autumn period, which that period would be the earlier half of the first millennium BC. Uh, wow. which they, they had um, transporting from the Han and Jin dynasties. So that, that indicates how early the, the trade might be between India and China. In, in terms of like uh, historical ongoing trade, I think um, w- worthy to mention that, that Indian uh, manufacturing has always been a big thing. So they've always been exporting around the world, far, far and wide, uh, for a lot of the um, agricultural products and good, goods like the wheat and rice they, they had cotton uh, they, they, they exported you know like textiles and different herbs for medicines as well so uh, salt salt uh, salt export is a big export and um, back in ancient times in Sri Lanka they had pearls and they had uh, jewelry and decorations so yeah there's always been an ongoing trade so going back if we're saying um, as far as that we know uh, for from popular culture, um, Buddhism would be a historical mile, milestone. One of the more well-known facts of what came from uh, India to China. So I think today possibly we could look into that, um, um, give the history, the historical backdrop of that, and then we can go go into the ancient Indian martial arts that stem from part of that cultural exchange. And, yeah. and uh, I think the the last section of this podcast we, we it is worthy to talk about Badiyama and Shaolin so on the pronunciation is Bodhidharma is it Bodhidharma? Bodhidharma yeah Bodhidharma yeah Bodhidharma. but he's also called Dharma as well and and uh, there's another word I think is uh, very similar to Dharma uh, Dharma Yeah, it is. Uh, it is something um, so intriguing because there's various records, and and you mentioned about one BC, and I, I am not hundred percent sure on on the timeline because of some of the um, historical um, scriptures in India, like the Mahabharata, which is supposed to be carbon dated and uh, to back to about three thousand years where there was various other styles of martial arts and uh, uh, experts in archery and uh, the mace and, and wrestling. So, and various other, uh, perhaps it's uh, mythological um, stories within it as well to give a lesson on martial arts. So there's, there's that. And um, uh, going from the, the first century to the Ming Dynasty really quickly. So oh, like, oh, yes. kind of like a fun facts of run through. So, oh, yeah. yep. Um, first century is 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 only noted as the first century because that's the oldest that we can go from uh, an archaeological perspective. We can go beyond that, but um, 
we know that even from the first century that there's those decorations that we mentioned those carnelian beads that they found in in chinese sites um second century so you had the first um kind of uh documented records of of contacts and uh communication between china and india uh written in the second century bc so you had the um, expedition of um, Zhang Qin to Central Asia. So uh, we had Buddhism then transmitted from India to China in the first century uh, and, and the second century. So trade relations uh, was a, were actually very active at the time, uh, the economic contact between the two regions. And there's historical records making references to Shendu, which might be referring to the, the Indus family. Uh, the Sin province in uh, what we now the modern Pakistan, uh, and a lot of the documentation, uh, a lot of the writing literature uh, that was being shared and being uh, fed into into China at a time would, would have been in Sanskrit. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> you had that. You had um, Chinese chess, still very very popular now, uh, just like Western chess. So um, it's believed that. That might have been part of the cultural exchange or or inspiration from um, from Indian culture. So you had the Indian chess of is it Chaturanga? Chaturanga? Yeah, or, or Shatranj. Shatranj in modern uh, sort of Hindi or Urdu. Chaturanj, and it started off like uh, you mentioned. That, actually, I do like chess, and um, I was looking into that, and, and it started off with rice grains, apparently. That's so. Uh, I'm not sure how much of this is a fact, but first it started off with various rice grains which represented different um, uh, players on, on, on the chessboard and then it went into the actual armies. Sorry, uh, so <laughs> from the Chinese perspective, they, they documented it, um, historically known in the Han Dynasty, and it was, like, like, you, like you mentioned, to represent a battle formation and to use like kind of a uh, formation being a, a lot more applicable back then where you don't have like you don't you don't have air you mostly like sea and land and sea and land the idea of surrounding the army uh, would be as important as like infiltrating like nowadays you have a different the chessboard is completely different right? the, with the air battles and the sea battles but back then if it's land battles and formation is everything and in the Han Dynasty um, it, it was a popular game then, and they, they believed that it was uh, invented by one of the Han military generals, um, Han Sin from the Han Dynasty. But uh, the inspiration might be a lot older than 200 BC uh, from kind of like the Indian game, like you said. So, uh, second century, we also had um, uh, scholars. There's a scholar, Bangu, uh, ambassador from China to uh, to the court of is it Chola? Cholas. Cholas, yeah. The Chola Kingdom. Yeah. The Chola Kingdom, which was uh, a big, uh, very influential kingdom at its time. So um, that that would be in present day, is it uh, in the region of, uh, more in the Tamil region? Or? Yeah, so, so they were in the south, actually. The Chol- the, there's two very powerful kingdoms spread across Southeast Asia into Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, and is mainly Cholas and the Pandyas. Uh, and Cholas 
you know, retain the culture, preserved the philosophy and the arts and the martial arts and traditions. And they sort of took that on out to YSC and to Southeast Asia. See, so um, if, even in the Song Dynasty in 11th century, that relationship, um, the commercial trade, uh, commercial relationship between China and the Chola, uh, that, that continued very well. It had a, what, what appeared in the Song Dynasty, a very healthy relationship. Uh, so you had the, the the head of the Chola kingdom, Rajendra Chola, uh, yeah. and they had um, commercial political diplomats sent to China, and that might have been a very very big uh, when we go back to the topic of martial arts the turning point of martial arts so i think the monks predominantly went to china to um preach uh hinduism and buddhism more more so teach they were, they're more invited to teach more than preach to teach with their sanskrit to teach sanskrit yeah. and to teach yeah. buddhism there That's and uh, right. the first one of the first um abbots uh, well, the first abbot of the Shaolin Monastery was uh, Bato, who who was uh, southern India, from southern India. Um, so so he was India, and he was the founder, first founder of Shaolin. But of course, going back to what, what he was mentioning, Bodhi Dharma, uh, the the kind of almost mythical figure now, uh, the yeah. monk traveling from India. Uh, so so Bodhi Dharma would would have been. This is the point where Shaolin was actually founded in, in China. Yeah, and there's, you know, this is so fascinating. I mean, when you when you're talking about this, I, I am visualizing, I'm seeing, and I know this might sound cliched, and don't mean to offend any of the listeners, but I'm actually visualizing all these uh, movies I've been raised with, um, or the Indian and the Chinese ones, with the old um, traditional costumes and. And the kingdoms and the and the in uh, uh, um, the army um, battalions and the formations and you know so it is really exciting just to sort of when you're talking about this game it's, um, I can just see everything and then like talking about Bato and then again back to Bodhidharma which is um, you know that he's that mystical figure. iconic iconic and mystical and, and the thing is the mystical is because I mean they they've made Indian movies on him. Uh, where he's, he's, of course, he's like, he's almost like a god in a way, um, you know, the healer uh, who is trained with healing and some magical arts as well, with, uh, along with his Kalari Bayatu, which is from Kerala. And so they, they seem to uh, associate Bodhidharma from there. Uh, he came all the way from the traveled up. We're talking a, a long time ago, right? This is um, 495 AD. So. Uh, as of today, you, you took talking well over one thousand five hundred years ago. So precisely as of today, would be one thousand five hundred forty-four years ago. So Shaolin year four nine five A.D. or, or four seven seven. It's not very clear, but um, um, as per what you're saying, with the uh, what you had in mind and the storytelling in China today, it's still a very very popular story, and it's known as the one of the four great literatures of China, uh, the, the biggest hit literature in, in, in the whole of um, uh, the world of literature would be uh, Journey to the West. So yeah. that story, uh, I'm not sure, Bear, have you heard of that story, Journey to the West? 
I have heard of it, um, but uh, yeah, you can tell me, you can enlighten me on that because um, I've seen so many movies and stories I've heard of. So this this would ongoing, be- ongoing. Every year they have new new movies made for it, and now that uh, <laughs> with the current age of CGI, it just makes that movie a lot more possible, yeah. a lot more. Uh, you, you need CG effects for that movie to work. It's, it's basically you can describe like the Lord of the Rings of the the Eastern world of the Oriental world. Mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings with all the fairies and all the demons yeah. and all the demigods. So, Journey to the West was a, a novel, um, loosely based on historical events, but it was to commemorate um, a Chinese monk called Xuan Sang, who was a monk at the Jintu Temple in. Um, the, the early Tang Dynasty and the late Su Dynasty, uh, who traveled from China to the West. Now, the West, uh, as depicted in, in the story, the West to China, being very, very far, was in northern Pakistan. Uh, and that was in time 630. So, uh, Su Sang traveled for roughly 16 years, over 16 years, to get scriptures, um, to visiting quite important Buddhist pilgrimage sites. Uh, studying at the ancient university at Nalanda, uh, and his 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 whole pilgrimage to go, was to go to Wild Goose Pagoda and make it back. So it was um it was a very epic journey, uh, given the technology and the, the difficulty of traveling at the time. So um, it, he was celebrated with uh, this journey to the West novel, which was centuries after the actual event it was published that was published in the 16th century in the Ming dynasty uh, and was attributed to a famous author as I mentioned being four great classical novels of Chinese literature but um, it was very influential with the the characters monkey uh, being known around the world like we, we see him in Dragon Ball Z be part of the inspiration between uh, the different anime characters like you had Goku from Dragon Ball Z but they, they do say monkey as well from a cultural perspective may, may have been much more older than journey to the west itself maybe even older than the actual travel that um, the monk made to the west it might be from uh, a hindu deity yeah sounds sounds very similar how they're describing the monkey um in some of the um uh, 70s movies i've watched um on this um it's sort of related to Hanuman, perhaps, and and the sort of the powers they describe is is sort of similar. Um, so yeah, what what language was this uh, recorded? It was it Cantonese or was it? It was in Chinese. It was in it was in Chinese at the time in the Ming Dynasty Chinese. And where, where do they have like um, this? Probably in a museum, I, I suppose somewhere somewhere in China. They probably got this in a museum. Is this something which can be, is there any digital sort of records of it which people could sort of find online somewhere? Oh, the, 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 the book is well published. It's like um, as popular as Lord of the Rings and described by some Eastern academics as one of the most popular literary works in East Asia because um, it's, it's a story that has a lot of color to it, a lot of gods, demons. So there's different mediums. There's comic books, there's video games, uh, there's movies, there's the actual book, uh, quite often made into a drama series, ongoing drama series. Like you said, uh, the actual book, 1592, you can yeah. get the print of it. Publication uh, date was, uh, so 
just just under four hundred and something years. Four hundred um, something years, just under five hundred years old. Okay, uh, I can imagine this. Yeah, I would love to have a look. I would love to have a read, uh, or even watch one of the dramas on this, um, because that that would you know it, it's it's as I say it's it's so similar. Like you said um, about Lord of the Rings, it's probably, it probably sounds very similar. And yeah, it was them. Um, yeah, because the monk travelled so far, he travelled ten thousand miles and visited um, several several kingdoms. And back then, there were more kingdoms back then, so th- there was difficulties and obstacles, and you had to go through a lot more gates. So it was um, sixteen to seventeen years years long pilgrimage. I mean, the, that was bringing Buddhism from uh, China, from India to China, and and also really demonstrating how. How, how interconnected the two societies are completely different but how they did have that cultural exchange now going back to the martial arts um, I think uh, Bodhidharma deserves to have his own own part in his podcast but uh, while while that culture was still being seeped in from India to China were there any ancient martial arts that stood out in India yeah so um, around that time, uh, but the histories are written by various um, kings and, and authors. Uh, the earliest records is for, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about Mahabharata. So there was um, there's a few um, astronomical dating of the sites they've described and the wars which are fought and how the um, the sort of the teacher-student relationship it was like the guru shishya is called in Sanskrit, where they used to so the warrior ca- uh, class used to be trained in archery, with wrestling, with um, economics, etc. And um, so, you know, the most common now is Galare Bayeku. Uh, which was not known, not really well known in the West until I think about 20 years ago uh, or so, and now it's getting, getting more popular around the world. Then you have um, the North had um, the Gatka, which is sort of in Punjab region, um, which this, this sort of the Sikhs sort of um, adopted it more or developed it further perhaps and that's debatable <laughs> uh, based on you know uh, facts and records but, and that only goes back about four five hundred years with that guy but prior to the Sikhs they were the you know, rulers the kings those warriors used to have that then you have the Shastar Vidya which is just the knowledge of the weapons and that goes back time immemorial uh, which includes the invocation of the gods and the mantras and, and the usage of various sort of weaponry you also have from Tamil Nadu uh, or in the south, as I mentioned, Kalari Bird, but you could have Silambam as well, which is similar to Kalari, which is uh, acrobatic with sticks and perhaps even various weapons. Uh, and um, there is one which I can't put my uh, finger on, which is in the east, it's northeast. And they say it's sort of a, a predecessor of Silla, of Nangjian Silla. Uh, I, maybe you know this one so there's there's quite a few and it's it's always in you know then you um the salat is um prim- primarily uh known for it's malaysian kind of uh, pentax salat so yeah. a lot but, of um, self-defense maneuvers uh a, a lot to do with 
but there is there are certain stories uh, we speak to certain martial artists they will swear by that it came from India the roots and the origins uh, <laughs> yeah. like, like so there's, a, there's a traditional saying um, yeah. that all martial arts in, uh, on earth came from Shaolin so the, yeah. from heaven and earth <laughs> all martial arts came from the institution of Shaolin but of course that's, that's looking at it very shallow like okay. Shaolin is ancient that make no mistake that is as old as it gets right but when you when you look for older surprise you do find older so the ones that you mentioned uh which is the first one you mentioned is that was that the oldest one uh kalari oh, bayatu which is from kerala there's gutka there's shasta vidya the skushti which is the wrestling which i first mentioned when we started talking um that and then you have the silambam which is in the south in tamil nadu and there's various what other ones um and you know like the in nepal they have their own sort of gurkha warriors um they have their own sort of fighting art um using the kukri um so um i think in the western uh the the short in the name they call it kalari is it yeah. the, that's the kalari payatu yeah yeah that one really does resemble shaolin when they jump in the air and they they thrust like a obviously shaolin is is you do have shaolin swords but shaolin is known more for the staff for that uh, to commemorate the buddhist kind of mindset of not killing that's why shaolin they use the staff a lot more than the spears and and the swords but they do have they have swords they have bow swords they have daggers they have uh the chain darts they have they have all kinds of like so kalari payatu uh from pronouncing it properly or a lot easier to pronounce kalari uh from what i know is one of the ancient indian martial arts uh from southwestern coast of india so uh, as you were saying you have this north and west divide of india so in in the martial art kingdom in in chinese culture you have uh the northern and southern so you don't really have a western kind of front in in the martial art kingdom of course like nothing is truly northern or truly southern you always have a it's always a mix of in between but they they tend to like dividing chinese martial arts into the north and the south so is it the case you have the west and the north in in india yeah that's a good question actually um, with the well we have to look back at the history of india and i'll put that in a nutshell so with the you mentioned earlier with the the chola kingdoms uh, chola and the pandyas actually in the south they were really strong um, kingdoms uh who expanded collapsed expanded and they they uh, when we had when india had um invasions by the moguls by the islamic uh, from turk and uh, arab nations uh and this is going back in the 11th century uh ad where so they were in the north of india they were under attack constantly first by the greeks that was uh So as I said pretty nutshell India was constantly under attack since the Greeks and um you know uh so there was a big martial tradition and culture within India to protect its borders and her people and so various kingdoms and as you know India had loads hundreds of kingdoms kings and they reunited they fought each other they united against the enemies um and I mean with the, with the Greeks it was a lot to do with exchange of knowledge 
uh, and culture and traditions, uh, but they also uh, defeated the Greeks. Uh, Alexander the Great was defeated because um, uh, that's another story we could do. But with um, with the South, um, so what I'm going to getting to is that the su- Southern Kingdoms, um, like the Pandyas and the Cholas, they're very powerful, and this is why Kalari Payetu and various other martial arts and traditions survived through the Islamic invasions, through the British invasions, the colonials. So all these sort of traditions survived. And in the North, the martial art survives because of the Sikhs, uh, especially in Punjab area, um, where they preserved Gatka, which is the sort of now the Sikh traditional martial arts, which they learned. And in the, uh, so there's a difference, the differences between sort of that um, uh, un- invaded, almost uninvaded uh, region of the south compared to the invaded region of the north of India, northwest uh, and east. So this is why there's a difference because the north was sort of a bit more mixed um, after the invasions and the south remained uh, pure in that sense in terms of the traditions. Uh, even with Kalari, Kalari was hidden uh, from the British army um, because anyone who knew martial arts were uh, uh, executed. <laughs> so, because uh, so how much of a threat, um, yeah. how formidable they were. Uh, you can really see the the Shaolin-like movements, and you should say, or you should more say, Shaolin has that very Kalari-like movement, where they're very acrobatic. They have that choreography between uh, two practitioners, and they, they have this kind of dance, which is. It's celebrated as a dance as well. I know that some dance schools actually take uh, Kalari modules because it does help with that flexibility, the leg work, and the acrobatic jump. You need that kind of good physique, that kind of ripped physique to, to, to be so Absolutely, agile yeah. the, 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 and you, strong you, at the same time. Yeah, you really hit a um, good note there in terms of the dance, the dance culture. And there's a lot, of, again, with the martial art world as well in India, it said that it came from dance came from animals, but then also came from dance. And a lot of these movements in Kalari also moved the Bharatnatyam, a classical dancing of India. Uh, sort of they intertwine. So you could say, um, you know, that martial arts is a dance. It's, it's in, a, in a sense, it's a dance. A dance is a form of martial arts, it can be interchanged. Um, you know, it, well, down to the basics, there's a movement, isn't it? Yeah. It's the movement side. Yeah, and uh, the martial, uh, the martial side, the word martial, uh, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, uh, the word the word Kalari means battlefield. Mm. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So it really does have that. Uh, whenever I do see a Kalari um, demonstration, mostly with a sword and a shield. So uh, with the actual non combat side, I see. I don't see that many demonstrations with that even like you mentioned the Sikh martial arts they, they do really heavily prize the sword isn't it the sword is almost a sacred kind of item uh, whereas with the Chinese martial arts I see a lot of demonstrations unarmed as well but with the, the Indian martial arts or n- not many that I've seen it, it's mostly uh, with swords swords and spears uh, curved swords mm-hmm. uh, big big swords and with a shield as well you mentioned swords. I just remembered uh, spears. Uh, I, I remembered the 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 Nagasathus, which are the naked saints, yogis of India, 
um, who actually were warriors. So how they were formed were, was that they were naked warriors in India, and this is going back uh, at least uh, two thousand years back. Where and the tradition still survives. So in the north of India, uh, near the Ganga River or the Himalayas, they they usually reside there, um, and is they're part of the Juna Akara, which is again they do wrestling, they got weapons, but they are like monks. And now they only do it for show, like the Shaolin um, monks who go around the world, um, you know, and they have their sort of shows. But these monks now don't actually fight for real; um, they just have sort of a show tournament um, and sparring, which they show to people while while they they still remain as celibate monks, you know, practicing very austere yogic practice, uh, positions and practices there. so it's it's really interesting that well, when you see how they do it when, they, when you see the fighting as well they're re- really wild with dreadlocks and smeared in ashes and <laughs> holding skulls right <laughs> oh, it's that kind of uh tribal almost tribal that's right kind of a uh, uh, mindset yeah so the weapons are not so we all know that like in India is really uh, into the swords. Uh, so you also have like um, uh, rope spear. So you see that in most Shaolin demonstrations with the rope dart. So the rope spear is something that you've always had in India or going back ancient times again. This is going back to bow and arrow kind of ancient times. Yeah, that is so fascinating. I mean, all these weapons, is, I mean, it's hardly used now nowadays because, you know, uh, modern martial arts have guns. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it wouldn't be the, the bow and arrow duel. But yeah. the wrestling um, from the sports side is it, still very popular. One of the most popular sports, uh, being it one is. of the older sports as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. I mean, it's something I would have, I, I would have loved to learn. Um, I mean, there's a whole art, as you know. It's, it's, it's. You know, you've, you've got to go to your school and be totally committed, dedicated to um, the art, really, of wrestling. You have the, um, different types as well. So you have the folk wrestling uh, in the countryside. So that's when I see um, documentaries, you have this uh, mud pit where they kind of toil and it's really soft, soft soil that they have. So they could, they could do throws and they could do grappling matches and, uh, and they, could, they train on that as well. So they keep that pretty soft. And I think they pour water over it. They keep it like a bit moist, giving yeah. it a really hot temperatures of, of the regions and you also have um slightly more uh would, i would call it modern in the western world you have the freestyle wrestling and you have the uh, international competitions so you have the competitive wrestling so you have that as well which is very popular in, in, in the us with the college wrestling oh yeah is that the same in china then is it is that wrestling culture no, still no you wrestling culture is is uh but martial art as a culture is minuscule in China uh, in terms of active participation. Uh, some would, uh, the actual martial arts are more in the kind of um, popular culture domain. So you would have it in, in comic books, you have it in movies, you have it in video games. Yeah. But from the general public saying, oh, after work or after, after studying, I'm going to go to martial arts school. It, it's very, very small.
they call it Shujiao, uh, approximately, they, they say that's about 4,000 years old, uh, very old. Shujiao um, is more uh, popular in, in the north, up north region. So more Mongolia. Mongolian wrestling is its own type of wrestling. Yeah. It's not the same as Shujiao. So Shujiao, you have uh, kind of like a fest top that you wear. So you, you notice a bit like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or yeah. Judo. You have a kind of uh, competition top. Uh, same as you have in, in uh, uh, Sambo, and R- Russian wrestling as well. So in, in Shujiao as a sport, it's been growing for the past uh, 25 years but it's not it's still not mainstream grappling is not a mainstream uh, sport in China that's interesting I mean I would have thought not grappling but at least there would be a um, internet or well, Chinese school for Shaolin where they would have tournaments you know with, let's say for example Shaolin with Bing Chun with uh, sort of Mantis different styles would that not be the case or or is it just sort of in movies now? Oh, you have that. Yeah. Definitely have martial art competitions. I'm just saying, back to my point, is that it's not uh, your mainstream sport. So yeah. you, you wouldn't, uh, uh, you and your colleague or you and your classmate wouldn't go go to martial arts oh, right. after. Like, you, you obviously do have practitioners, but the chances are you, you more likely be doing karaoke or badminton or, or table tennis or football. Yeah. <laughs> you, you go play football in the park or you play basketball in the park. But to, to go oh after after work let's let's go for a round of shu jiao and, and try to like you know do submission wrestling it's, it's really not a mainstream sport. Body dharma, also known as the rumor in Japan, uh, tamo or or tamo uh, or tamo depending on your Chinese pronunciation from different regions. Uh, what do we know about Bodhidharma? Mm. Well, uh, what little I know about Bodhidharma is that he was the founder of Shaolin Kung Fu. He traveled all the way from India. He was a Buddhist or a Hindu, Hindu Buddhist monk, and he was well-versed in the philosophies and the arts and healing. And uh, the other fun fact I know, um, I'm not sure how true it is, but he cut off his eyelids and he meditated. So he, just, he didn't go to sleep. He didn't want to go to sleep. He just wanted to meditate and attain enlightenment, perhaps. Um, but yeah, that's that's where the stories I've heard. Yeah, so he, he was described either Persian or Central Asian or South Indian. And, and some say that he, he was a, a prince of a, a great Indian king in, in the southern region. So you have this kind of, a, I'm not sure if that's from the Buddhist influence to, to really up his uh, status and play play with the, the Buddhist tune, that he, he was actually a prince who gave up his uh, princehood, if you call it, or gave up his royalty and, and went as a traveling monk. Yeah, that could be that could be true. I mean, but then if he was a prince, then, uh, you know, uh, the stories may have been, uh, somebody may have been paid to write certain stories. Uh, if you had wealth in those days, then you would dictate what kind of history you want to write and record. Um, so history-wise, it really goes back to um, really early, early texts. I think the earliest texts um, stemming from the Tang Dynasty, uh, you, you also have um, back in um, 547, uh, long time 
uh, translation of the Mahayana Sutras, is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce it? Mahayana Sutras. So uh, the historical artifacts then uh, documented that in the Western region, you had Bodhidharma, which was a, a Persian Central Asian descent, tra- traveled to the wild borderlands of China. And the story says that while he was um, uh, tra- traveling in China, he noticed that there were monks, uh, Buddhist monks, that he was setting up a school for who was lacking the fitness uh, for meditation. So you, little people know that if you try meditation, you know how exhausting it is. It's not just sitting there uh, watching YouTube or, or listening to your podcast. It's actually <laughs> a very active kind of practice. So yeah. you do get physically kind of um, exhausted, don't you, from, from meditation? Yeah, that's, that's what I understood from meditation is you need physical fitness physical exercises to be able to um, hold your pose and the back straight and and sit there for hours uh, so yeah. so the, the story says that the Bodhidharma as like or well, Tamo he start, started teaching them uh, stretching exercises like um, eight, uh, eight movements eight, eight moves of stretching so just doing like uh, the crossbow stance doing the horse stance uh, having the, the arms outstretched to like a bow pulling bow position uh, having kind of exercises and stretches you do in primary school uh, but that kind of inspired the, the first kind of sports practice in, in Shaolin Temple and it's so fascinating I mean I can just imagine that time we've not been there but you never know it's uh, it's sort of you know a, a time when you had least technical technology um, there was no modern technology there and they were traveling by foot or by horse carts um, and then he had to climb mountains can you imagine that that pilgrimage or that journey which he made um, and, and many others many others say many others who traveled up to Tibet and and Far East um, you know traveled by foot in those days um, wanting to extend out uh, what they knew how to make um life richer and better um, and this is fascinating about Dhammo or Bodhidharma um, teaching all the movements to um, Shaolin monks so um, in this meditation you said with the eyelids there was a variation uh, that he was gazing at the cave so he, he went silent didn't eat didn't sleep uh, sat in this cave and was gazing into this cave and he gazed nine years into the wall so you have these um, Japanese and Chinese old uh, watermark paintings of, of Bodhidharma staring at the wall. So uh, for, for nine years he stared at the wall and not, not spoke to anyone uh, without having to fall asleep much of the time, staying awake. So, so that popular account says that he taught from the cave. So you would have his disciples going there trying to get wisdom from him. That He, he would sometimes interact with them, but most of the time he'd be sitting there uh, in this kind of legs cross position, so that's that's also the kind of um, this little cape. Is it, is it a cape? You call it a robe? Sorry, with a robe of his, uh, just, just wearing a robe of his head. So you have that in the Daruma doll. So the Japanese tradition with the little dolls. So yeah. you have the Daruma doll that people don't really associate that with Shaolin very much. But uh, the Japanese have these dolls that are still popular today. Uh, they they look cool really uh, adorable 
decorative piece. And you kind of make a wish and you yeah. dot the eye. And uh, you wait for the wish to come true and you dot the other eye. So when you see, when you buy these um, kind of like paper or wooden dolls, you, you, you make a wish and you dot one of the eyes. So when you go into these Japanese homes, you see like, well, you can tell like when they've made a wish or not. When the wish comes true, you dot both of the eyes. Uh, so that doll itself is based on um, bodhidharma in this like, sitting position in the cage. So that that posture, like being kind of a, a squished up, like cross-legged, a small posture, that's that's bodhidharma. Um, yeah. Uh, you have other other bodhidharma legends as well. Like he's been apparently travelling all around China for for a long time. He lived up to 150 years. I mean that could be true. I mean, you know, there's been there's there's quite a lot a few uh, stories about different yogis in India who used to live up to about 120, 150 um, years old, and and through you know the power they accumulated, you know, through the practice of yoga and and you know practicing the chi or the prana. So it is. It can be believable, especially when he said, um, you know, people, his disciples used to come in to learn in the cave where he was sitting cross-legged, and that's a very typical position of a yogi in the Himalayas, in the in the mountain cave, where they used to just sit there for years, and even some Buddhist monks as well are known for that, and um, they found uh, mummified Buddhist monks. Um, who were in perfect position and then they were mummified once they achieved enlightenment. So that is um, so fascinating and, and very much believable, uh, apart from the cutting the eyelids, I, which <laughs> I'm not sure who would do that in this, this day and age. Uh, that is really interesting, I think. So uh, that that beginning of, um, of Bodhidharma stuff, starting at Shaolin, uh, so much was before that, so much um, history of martial arts it really goes beyond Shaolin indeed it does it's all these feats where humanity or human beings made to enhance their bodies and not just to defend themselves but to learn something new and again can be seen as an art an art form or a warrior form to defend uh, one's army or one's kingdom so the Yijin Jing um, so in Chinese uh, Tra- roughly translating to the muscle tendon, tendon change classic is really uh, what Shaolin says that you can reverse that you can actually uh, grow and reverse the joints it's very based on flexibility and the coordination with breathing it kind of it looks very internal but the uh, as a basics it's a foundation uh, curriculum in, in, in Shaolin because you need it for the acrobatic movements and the wide flexibility and the wide range of motion so the tendons and the, the, less the muscles when we think of muscles we think of bodybuilding but for the tenderness and how um, articulate those joints are and how flexible the, the wide range of flexibility the Yijin Jing is is attributed to to Bodhidharma so he, he was really known for that uh, as well as being uh, on on the kind of uh, meditative side uh, or religious side, Zen founder of, of, of Shaolin, so uh, or the Zen founder in China. So I think really to end the podcast, uh, it, it's worth mentioning uh, a teaching from Bodhidharma. Thank you, Kay, and thank you everybody for listening. Let's just end with the 
special teachings of uh, Bodhidharma, a special transmission outside the scriptures, not depending on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, seeing into one's true nature and attaining Buddhahood. Thank you all.